0: Well, if you have a Bible with you, would you turn to Colossians chapter 3? If you don't have a Bible, halfway down the aisles here in the bannisters are some black Bibles you can use for this morning. You can see at the front of the Bible an index, and you can find your way to Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, we've been working our way through this letter of Paul to the church in Colossae, and sometimes taking a big chunk at a time, other times less of a chunk, and today we come. To a small chunk, it fits with Mother's Day, verses 20 and 21, related to children and to parents. Now, before I read these verses, Colossians 3, verse 20 and 21, let me just ask you to look up in your Bibles, if you're at Colossians 3, and remind yourself of what came before. Remember, this is a letter. Remember that we're not just taking this verse like it's a floating nugget in a sea of other sayings. The book of Proverbs is a bit like that in our Bibles, but these letters have context and we should keep paying attention to context, especially when we go through a book, uh, maybe just a couple of verses a week or something like that as we're doing today. So notice Colossians 3.1, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things which are above. And then Paul elaborates that for a little bit. We We have an upward-mindedness, a future-mindedness. Then look at verse 5. He tells the Colossian Christians to put to death what's earthly in them. And then he lists a bunch of things. It's part of the old self, he says. Then he gets to verse 12, and he says, put on instead this. Put off this old stuff and put on the new stuff. The new stuff? compassion kindness humility meekness patience eventually he'll go on to talk about love and then verse 16 he'll tell really the whole church let the word of christ dwell in you richly both in your corporate meetings like this one which we're doing this morning and of course as you scatter throughout the week in your homes and by yourself let the word dwell within you richly and whatever you do verse 17 do it in the name of the lord jesus Then he got into specific relationships. In verse 18, he spoke to wives and husbands. We saw those two verses a couple of weeks ago. And now we come to verse 20, where he addresses children and fathers. He says, verse 20, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So if you're following along on that sermon notes page you got on your bulletin and your way in, you'll see, I want to talk about three different things here. Two of them are obvious from the two verses we read. God's word for children, verse 20. Secondly, God's word for parents, verse 21. And then we'll talk about what's at stake. We'll talk about the big picture of these things. Because it's not just good advice. It's not just recommendations for a happy home. It's... Something more than that. We'll talk about what, what's more about it. So first, God's word for children. Verse 20. Notice the obvious. This is addressed to children. That might not be surprising in, in our culture, but Paul's writing to first century Romans. He personifies the children. He gives them personhood. He, he speaks to them directly, not through the mediator of a, of a father or a mother. We'll come back to that in just a little bit, but just note this. This is unheard of in the first century for some kind of letter like this to address children directly. But God, through Paul, addresses children and every kid in here hearing me directly. He says, first, obey parents in everything. Everything. Now you might notice this is similar to what he said about wives. He said that wives should submit to their husbands, verse 18. Here he says children should obey their parents. It's a different Greek word that's important to note, a different Greek word for a wife's submission and a child's obedience. And There's even a different tense of the verb which tells us, I think, that the child's obedience is, is much more rigid in a sense, more emphatic. It's It's less voluntary. Children are to obey their parents, it says, in everything. Now, obviously, if there were parents demanding their kids to sin, and we're talking about Christian kids here, Christian kids should not obey them. In Acts 5, there's a legitimate authority over the apostles as they're preaching it's the rulers of the land. And they're saying, don't preach. You better stop your preaching. And they say, it is better for us to obey God rather than you. Sometimes that's right. No doubt a child's obedience, obeying, that kind of language has more than once been used to, for a parent to do horrible things with kids. But. That that aside, sin aside, it says children obey your parents not when they make sense, not when they're cool, not when they seem reasonable. What's it say, kids? Go ahead, say it. If you're 18 and under, I better hear it. Come and find you afterwards. What's it say? Children obey your parents in? Everything. Everything. Mom and dad will hold you to that later today, I'm sure. <laughs> now that includes things that, that don't gel with your friends. That, inclo- that includes phone usage, internet usage, curfews. Whether you should date him or her, or when you're ready to date, or when you're ready to get you know, ears pierced, or a tattoo, or m- wear makeup. Or how low is too low? Obey your parents in everything including all the things that you think are stupid. Know that you think they're stupid because you're stupid. (laughs) Now let me justify that just a bit. Proverbs says that He who thinks he knows when he doesn't really know is a what? A fool, yeah. So I know that that there are all kinds of kids in here, and this is one of them, a grown-up kid who at one point thought, Mom and Dad just don't know. They just don't get it. And then, get this, kids, eventually you're going to grow up, and you're going to find yourself with kids saying things very similarly to what you thought was stupid when you were a kid. All of a sudden you'll find out at 35 or 40 or 45 or something that mom and dad weren't as stupid as you thought. They were as uncool as you thought, but they're not as stupid as you thought. (laughs) Everything. Ephesians 6 is kind of a passage that complements Colossians 3 here. It gives kind of the longer versions of the husbands and wives verses in Colossians 3, 18 and 19, and it gives longer verses of the children and parents. So in Colossians 3, it's important, I'm sorry, in Ephesians 6 rather, it's important to note that Paul there adds this command: honor your father and mother. From the fifth commandment, which Ron read for us earlier. In other words, don't just obey, but obey with the right attitude. With God, the heart matters. Mom and dad may not treat it like it matters. You might right now be allowed to get away with, with a heart attitude that's less than pleasing to the Lord. You might get away with the, Lord, uh, with the parents, but the Bible knows and tells us we don't get away with it with God. Even if you're good at hiding your inward rebellion, your bad attitude, your grumbling spirit in front of mom and dad God knows he sees it the heart matters which means that back talk is dishonoring protesting, yelling why is dishonoring or younger kids it just doesn't have to be teenage kids younger kids they can't fall to the ground when they don't want to do something or or they can't they can't do it but walk away like they got shot. Have you ever seen that move? It's... <laughs> and, and you think, is there a sniper somewhere in the, in the kitchen? Kids do that. Now, we're going to get to parents, but let me just say here, if we're going to talk about kids honoring their parents, there is an implied responsibility that parents expect honoring And they discipline for dishonor. Dishonoring is disobedience. There are two kinds of ways of disobeying mom and dad. One is not do what they say or to to do what they said not to do. The other one is to do what they said to do or to not do what they said not to do, but to do it with a bad attitude. Either of these are sin. Obey your parents. Honor your mother and your father. And then Paul gives a why here in his words. For children, it pleases the Lord, he says in verse 20. Do it for God. If mom and dad don't deserve your respect in your mind, do it for God. Do it because he said so. We'll return to that thought a little bit later as well. Okay, that's Paul's word for children in verse 20. And then secondly, you see in your notes, we, we come to God's word for parents in verse 21. He says there, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, you might have noticed already, I'm using the word parents, but Colossians 3, verse 21 specifies fathers. So let's let's talk about that for a minute. Why does Paul specify fathers here? Why doesn't he say fathers and mothers or generically parents? Well, you can find some various options in the different commentaries if you, you look through them and you find. One possibility is that Paul's writing this to first century Roman Christians, and in that culture, the man, husband and father, was seen as the patriarch of the family. Everything runs through him. And so it's a cultural comment, not necessarily anything theological or, or practical for us. Or another option would be, secondly, fathers were, in fact, directly in charge of their children to, uh, in a way back then that they're not not so much today. For instance in Roman culture it would be a given for a dad to be in charge of the kid's education especially the son's education so he would have been more hands on less gone to work for nine hours a day or something like that another option would be to say that It could be that a father in general is more prone to exasperate their kids than a mom would. Because that's the commandment specifically in verse 21. Don't provoke your children. Don't let them become discouraged. And dads can sometimes be more harsh than moms. And so maybe that's why Paul singles out men. Well, it could be any and all of these above. But I think there's another reason. I think there's something about male headship here. Now, if you missed two weeks ago and we talked about verse 18 and verse 19 about God's role relationship for men and women in the home, then I just encourage you to go listen to that because I'm assuming something here that you didn't hear and maybe you don't believe. I think what Paul means when he says fathers don't provoke your children, he's talking about the overall direction and the leadership of the parenting falling upon the father. Even if mom does more of the hands-on work throughout the day by necessity, the directional responsibility falls on the father. There's, I think, a theology of headship, we could say, in mind here. But that said, I think as long as we keep that in mind, we're all right to address parents. Obviously, moms can provoke their kids to anger. Moms can discourage their kids. Proverbs speaks a lot about a mom's role in, in parenting, in raising up sons and daughters. So it's, it's both something specific to the father and, and yet something applicable to both parents. What is this encouragement from Paul to parents? First, don't exasperate and discourage. That's probably the better way to translate the word there in verse 21. Provoke your children. Don't exasperate them. It literally means don't stir them up. So they'd be stirred up like an alka Seltzer pill in water, and they'd just be oozing with difficulty and contentment, uh, discontentment, and aggravation, and, and in sometimes a, a legitimate fashion. Now, you might be wondering, what does this really mean? Like, give me some concrete examples, ways in which parents may exasperate their kids, and hence would apply to this verse here. Well, I'll give you a list, and it's just a a random list of sample ideas with a whole lot of overlap. So I tried to to give a lot of examples as I put this list together and uh, not try to worry too much about overlap, thinking that maybe something will land on you, and you'll go, oh, that, that's me, I do that. Okay, so ways to exasperate and discourage your kids, well, constant discouragement, disapproval will be one, where expectations are too high, where there's a lack of encouragement. And I know this one's difficult because there are seasons of rebellion that deserve commensurate confrontation and discipline. So sometimes it feels like, that's all I do is spank. That's all I do is say no. And it could be because they're asking boneheaded questions like, you know, can I stay out till three with this girl? No. I don't care if I said no 50 times today. The answer is no. But we also know, maybe we've seen, maybe we've done a version of discouragement and disapproval, expectations being too high, and it just is in an unhealthy constancy. Or related, unreasonable irritability. Constantly aggravated. They're always on your nerves. Lack of affection. Never enjoying the kids. Just enduring them, directing them, and trying to get away as soon as you can. Maybe an unhealthy amount of nagging. Or worse, even belittling. Or even worse, belittling in front of others. Being overly strict. You say, what's overly strict? Tell me. Well, I don't know. You're going to be more strict than I am. Others going to be less strict than I am. We all have to figure that out on our own. And I guarantee you, the, the line in the sand keeps moving all the way through, apparent to it, right? You keep adjusting it. Whoa, that was too loose. Whoa, that's too tight. You keep going back and forth, rightly so. But there is a kind of strictness which is overly strict, and it doesn't help. It simply exasperates and discourages. Or being overly protective. Here, just like being overly strict, it seems like there's a good intention, right? I just want to protect you. I want to keep you. I just want to keep you close. I just want to know you're right there. And sometimes mom has to cut the apron strings loose and let her kid go go get hurt or something. Maybe not leading them enough. We'll kind of bounce between the extremes here. Especially with little kids, it seems to me that a long leash usually leads to meltdowns. Right? If the kids are free to do whatever they want, well, get ready, the roller coaster is going to crash. It might be a sugar crash, or it might be because... uh, they don't like now what you're telling them to do when you haven't told them to do anything for the last five hours or so. Or with older kids, we maybe could discourage them by, by not helping them think through things like clothes and music and movies and relationships with the other sex. And, and I know these are some decisions they have to make on their own, and yet I also know that they need a compass. They need some help. They need some lessons in navigating those dangerous waters. I think we could exasperate kids by throwing them in the deep end and saying, well, you got to figure it out. Or maybe them never feeling heard or understood. And, and I know there are all kinds of teenagers would go, yeah, that's it. You know, that's the problem. I'm, I'm not heard. I'm not understood. You get them, Ryan. And... And we probably need to address that teenager and say, they maybe are hearing you, you just don't like what they're saying in response. Maybe they do understand you and understand you better than you do yourself. But it could be that parents don't ever listen. It could be that there is no discussion beyond an age where where there should just be telling people what to do, little kids telling them what to do. Eventually you move on to something where you have to discuss and you have to explain more. Or never maybe coming down to their world. My kid loves video games, you say, with disgust. Maybe a good way to protect them from loving video games too much is occasionally play it with them. Figure out their world. Love their world because it's their world. I think related to this might be learning their love language. You know about that book, Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman? Uh, that's not perfect, but the paradigm's pretty good. There are different ways in which we feel loved and we communicate love. And chances are your love language isn't the same as all of your kids. And it's really likely if you have multiple kids that they don't all have the same love language. So I know for some of my kids it's tickling, other kids it's, it's talking, other kids it's gifts, that sort of thing. No, they're love language. Or maybe not providing rich, deep gospel hope is a means by which we exasperate and discourage. They need the hope of the gospel. They need the full acceptance of the love that comes to us in Christ. They need to know that mom and dad are sinners who deserve judgment. And God is a merciful God. And he saves, and he saves saves the lowliest. He saves Paul. Chief among sinners. Chief among sinners probably because he actually killed Christians. That is about as bad as it gets, right? God saved him. You can save your teenager. Keep telling them that. Maybe you frustrate your kids by never being wrong even when you are. Have you ever asked for their forgiveness? If not, that might be exasperating for them. And by the way, in never asking for their forgiveness and never talking about your sin to them, uh, you're missing great gospel opportunities where you can show your need of the gospel to them in living color. Inconsistent discipline, to go back to that, being capricious rather than measured in your discipline. If you have to give out discipline and then back it off to a reasonable level multiple times a year, you need to work on that. It, it's exasperating. If you say you're grounded for a year and then it ends up being a week, get a grip. You, you've got to work on that because your kids are exasperated with the roller coaster of, of your capricious discipline or a lack of discipline altogether or even alternatives to discipline, especially when they're young. Bribery is a thing that, that works. You can read books on economics and find out that bribery works. Works. But it doesn't establish authority at all. I'm not sure it establishes trust either. And it's certainly not what God tells parents to do to get kids to go the right way. Eventually, they'll be bribed to do the wrong thing. Maybe starting too late with discipline being too lenient and then freaking out. So in our home, we talk about You know there's the cone of shame for dogs? Okay? We don't use a cone of shame. Let me just... You you wondered, he does what? Okay, there's a cone of freedom. You don't have to wear it. It's just a a word picture here. So, parenting should look something like a cone that goes like this. It's tight at the bottom when they're young. You're tight, right? Right? You establish who's the boss early on, and then, ideally, it's a pretty smooth-going cone. Oh, I know there are all kinds of ripples along the way if you look closely. But ideally, it follows that path instead of the inverse cone, which is loose early on, and then, oh, crud, they're not turning out, and you squeeze, right? (laughs) Sixteen? and he still doesn't care about Jesus and still doesn't read his Bible, and and he never comes home on time, you're never going anywhere. You know, you squeeze it, and that's not helpful. I don't know what to do if you're in that position of realizing at 16 you didn't do any boundaries before, but probably what it means is more boundaries than you have been doing, less than you feel like you want to do because you don't want to squeeze. But a lack of discipline early on can be a way in which you exasperate kids later in their growing up years. Or or also, just lastly, not letting them be themselves, right? They have their wants. They have their taste. They have their sports. So don't try to make them a more successful version of you. Let them be themselves. One likes art. The other one likes Poetry. You hoped he would be a linebacker. (laughs) Dad, learn to like poetry. That's coming from a guy who makes his son play hockey. So far. (laughs) Thankfully, so far, he loves it. You want others? You want other examples of ways to exasperate your kids? Ask them. Ooh. Risky, I know. Ask them there are things that you do which frustrate them, exasperate them, discourage them. And of course, there may be some things in there that you know are non-negotiable, and you you disagree, and you disagree rightly so. But even still, where you disagree with their suggestions about what you could change, there's a great opportunity for you to model welcoming correction, evaluating correction, and then teaching them about how you've come to the place you've come to. And they may just actually have some things to tell you that you can learn from, some things that you need to hear, especially if you'll bounce it off your spouse or a close friend who can see these things up front as well and possibly confirm them. All right, don't exasperate and discourage, but do lovingly lead. Do lovingly lead. Already implied in my suggestions of what can exasperate kids is that there has to be leadership and authority and discipline and instruction. So we don't avoid exasperating kids by avoiding kids. We don't avoid exasperating kids by always letting them find out for themselves. Proverbs says a child left to himself brings his mother great shame. Kids do not raise themselves. We don't avoid exasperating kids by making sure everything is is always buddy-buddy. But it's not only practical, it's clearly implied there in Colossians 3, right? If Paul is telling the kids, obey your parents in everything, this pleases the Lord. And if he's saying in Ephesians 6, honor them, that implies mom and dad Doing something to see that that happens. It's explicit elsewhere. It's explicit in Ephesians 6, for instance, verse 4 bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Tell them what's wrong, tell them what's right. You have to tell them. Parents have to establish authority, and the sooner the better. Let discipline be discipline. And let the rest be acceptance and joy and encouragement. I wonder, what's the tenor of your home? To go back to things that might frustrate your kids, discourage them, dishearten them? I wonder if you, especially when they're younger, you don't discipline them enough, and so you're in a constant state of aggravation. I'm not saying clear your aggravation out on your kid. I'm just saying... If it feels like there's a lot of tension in the air, maybe it's because there actually is. You're letting it build up. And you can't expect kids to fix that. You should. So let discipline be discipline. Let Mount Sinai quake. You know, occasionally, commensurate with the offense, let them know that there is something wrong about what they've done. And God doesn't like it. And yes, you know that you're a fellow sinner, and they do too. But you represent God to them. And frankly, you don't have the luxury of pretending you're humble right now. You need to discipline them as God commands you to. Discipline and instruction. Let discipline be discipline. And then let the rest of the tenor of your home be acceptance and joy and, and enjoyment with each other. Now, I'm adding things to what Paul said. Look down, verse 21. Did you notice that Paul's words here, both to children and to parents, especially to parents, these are short. You imagine getting a parenting book, and it has verse 21 written in it, and it says the end. And you go, how much was this? I thought it was a book. I mean, here's a nugget of Paul's parenting advice, and doesn't it seem not only that it's short, but that it's lopsided? What I mean is, we know the Bible says other things that I've already been talking about, like discipline or even physical punishment, according to Proverbs, when they're younger. Instruction, teaching the scriptures, explaining the gospel. 2 Timothy 3 talks about that in Timothy's life. But, but why isn't any of that there? In Colossians 3, why why did Paul go so short? Well, one answer is that Paul was short on time. If you remember when we talked about the beginning of this study many months ago, we talked about Paul shooting off this letter similar to to Ephesians. He's got a lot of it in his mind. He's been writing it, perhaps, crafting it. But shooting off this letter to the Colossians because there's a, a false teaching going on in that city, and he wants to get a letter out to them quickly, and so he abbreviates yeah, that's part of it, I think. But but it could be something else. You see, this is what you would call in Paul's day a household code. Household code. You could search it on the internet today and find all kinds of examples of this. It goes all the way back to Aristotle in the fourth century B.C. Aristotle has maybe 40 pages on. What Paul's doing here in these verses, 18, 19, 21, all the way into chapter 4 about masters and slaves. The point is just that there are a plenty of these things in the Jewish, Greco-Roman world that Paul lived in. And he was taking from what the sea that he swam in. And he's using that form of a household code. You do this. Okay, you in the house, you do this. Okay, you in the house, here's your role, you do this. And yet he's very clearly Christianizing it. Yet the context is important here. We can find out as we look at all these different household codes in history what the expectations were. We can read about the laws. And for instance, we can read about the patria potestis, the power of the Father in the Roman world. In Paul's day, as before his day, Fathers could sell their children. Fathers could turn children into slaves. And fathers on some occasions could kill their kids. Now, it's important to know this was fading as a practice, as anything typical, around the first century A.D., but it was still in the books, even in the first century. It didn't become something out of the books, taken off the laws until the second century. Paul's addressing this, To parents who've grown up in a world where they can sell their kids, turn them into slaves, and kill them if they're ticked off enough. In a Roman world where these household codes often encourage routine beatings just to keep them in line. They didn't have to do anything wrong. They just thought it would be sort of like a a good scheduled thing. It's the third of the month, Johnny. Come on, let's go. Let's go to the shed. This is way different than the world that we know. Now, remember, Paul addresses kids directly. There is no household code that I could find. I'm sort of a history geek, so I every now and then do a rabbit trail that basically serves no purpose for the sermon, but I'm just curious. And so I couldn't find any uh, household code in history other than Paul's that directs Directly addresses kids. That was shocking. He personifies kids in a world that didn't. But we have to realize that we don't have a problem personifying kids in our culture. We have a problem idolizing kids in our culture. It's not a question of whether kids are persons in our culture. It's a question of whether they're God in our home. So it seems, if it seems like Paul is emphasizing only some things, that all he says to dads is don't exasperate them. You have to remember his context. We have to compare it with our context. And we have to ask what extremes would Paul be addressing in our day? I think we would see a little bit more on the other side of the coin. I've seen plenty of kids, my own included, publicly and vehemently question my authority. I haven't yet had a kid, and I haven't seen anyone's really, in in public, question a parent's love. Now, that would have been totally reversed in the first century. We have to know that's the air we breathe. It's a given parent's love. For the most part, oh, I know there are abuses. I'm not minimizing the abuses. But I'm saying decent homes, Christian homes, that are trying to figure out how to, to do decent parenting... Love is the given. Acceptance is the given. But mom and dad don't be don't seem to be able to say no and enforce it. All right, let me get to some more encouraging things. What's at stake? So we wrap this up. Let's think about four things here. What's at stake? Obedience is one of the things that's at stake in this discussion. Remember, Ephesians 6, 1 says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. This is right. It's not just right because mom and dad say it's right. It's not just right because what are you going to do? You can't get a job at 13 that pays the bills. I remember thinking as a kid, I'd move away. And if I could figure out a way to make mac and cheese out of that park shed thing, I'd do it. But Darn it, I think you need a stove. How do I get a stove? We don't just tell kids to obey and honor their parents because because they have to. Because God says it's right. Obedience. That's what's at stake. And not just mom and dad's obedience. Obedience to them, but obedience to God the Father. What's at stake? Secondly, it's going well and living long. That's the language of Ephesians 6, verse 3. Do this, honor them, that it may go well with you, and you might live long on the earth. That it might go well with you. This is in your best interest to obey and to honor. It goes well in a godly home, in a happy home, when you obey Now, it's probably worth pausing right here and asking the question, is is this a promise? What about this going well language? There are all kinds of kids that have grown up in a Christian home and been taught the Bible, and it hasn't gone well for them. Does the Bible promise certain guaranteed results for just pretty much biblical parenting, decent parenting? Well, not a promise. But it is a principle. And, And probably most of us in here fall on one side of the emphasis, of the syllable, right? We, we emphasize one or the other side of this. So Proverbs 22.6, many of you have it memorized. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. Or maybe less known, Proverbs 29.17, discipline your son, and he will give you rest. Huh. He will delight your heart. Is that a promise? No, but it is a Principle. It's not 100% guaranteed. So there's a way to overestimate the reality of verses like these. And to think, God, you lied. I gave them Bible. I brought them to church. I told them no. I spanked them when they were young. And now they hate me and they hate you too. He didn't lie. He didn't say it's a promise, but he did say it's a principle. So yes, there's a way to overestimate the reality of a verse like that, and there's a way to underestimate the reality of a verse like that, to think, oh, it's a crapshoot. doesn't matter what you do. Oh, especially us who believe in sovereign grace, the wind blowing where it wishes, the spirit blowing in hearts to give, new eyes to see, and faith to believe. We can be fatalistic, I think. We can think, doesn't matter. I mean, God can awaken a heart whether I do anything or not. Who knows? With me, it was like this. And so you read your own story into it. I didn't get saved until I was 24. So they, they got time. Amen. Yeah, it can't lead to passivity or else we're ignoring big chunks other, other places in our Bibles. But I think not going well for you, that, that language there of Ephesians 6.3 is important and you can teach it to your four-year-old or three-year-old. You can, you can say in the midst of discipline, is this going well for you? It's not, is it? Well, it's not going well for you now in hopes that it goes well for you later on. Right? If you skip the not going well for you when they're four, there is a greater likelihood it will not go well for them at 24 and 44. And the ultimate version of it not going well for them isn't jail or the streets, it's hell and eternal destruction. Make sure sin doesn't go well for them now, for their soul's sake. Authority, obedience, honor, discipline is not unrelated to eternal destinies. It's not that that shapes morality, but the gospel gives life. It's law and gospel. I could go on right there for another hour, but I won't. We'll move on to this next thing. What's at stake? Pleasing the Lord is what's at stake. We talked about this already, but I want to point out in verse 21, it doesn't just say pleasing to the Lord. Literally what it says in the Greek is this is pleasing in the Lord, which would seem weird unless we search that word in in Colossians. Look over. Chapter 1, verse 14. In In whom we have redemption. In Christ we have redemption. Look also at verse 17. Paul says there he's before all things. And in him all things hold together. Or chapter 2 verse 3. What's it say there? In whom, in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Or chapter 2 verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. Or verse 11, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands. He he did soul surgery on you. Verse 12, you've been buried with him in baptism. It's literally in him in baptism. And then chapter 3, just a couple more references. You've died Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then verse 18. We saw two weeks ago. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. This is pleasing in the Lord. Kids, it is pleasing in the Lord. Those are wonderfully loaded words that I pray someday you understand in a much greater way. What it means is that they're... There is a duty for kids in the home that's part of a new creation. There's something cosmically glorious going on when kids obey parents. It's part of his redemptive plan for kids to obey parents in the Lord. He has a plan for restoration. Restoration that plan for restoration he spelled out in chapter 3 with the church and those things that they're supposed to do with each other, things that they're supposed to avoid with each other, and then he gets into these specific relationships here. So if you say, where's the gospel in all this? You haven't been listening too carefully in Colossians, because it's everywhere here, isn't it? It's the means by which he's putting us in this new creation. How does it happen? Verse 14 of chapter 2, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set it aside. He nailed it to the cross. Yes, that's what we're praying for our kids. But that's not the goal. We're hoping for something more than just their forgiveness or just their heavenly wordness that someday they'll go to heaven, not hell. We're praying that they in the new creation and of the new creation that they live the risen life that Paul talked about in chapter 3 verse 1 pleasing the Lord or pleasing in the Lord tells us this is not just do's and don'ts this is God's transformation of a broken earth it starts in your home and lastly What's at stake here is nothing less than another covenant picture. Similar to marriage, where there's that divine human picture embedded, right? Husbands represent Christ and his sacrificial love for the church. Wives represent the church and their obedience, their following to Christ and their husbands. Well, similarly, the parent child relationship gives us a divine human picture kids must obey mom and dad because well because god's people are called children and children are supposed to be like their parents i know that's scary kids but it's in the bible obey your parents and be like them in all the right ways it doesn't mean dark socks and shorts (laughs) unless that's cool nowadays and i don't know about it i don't know i'm 35 i give up 36 I'm old enough to already forget, right? This whole concept of the fatherhood of God and us being his children is such a rich one. And it's not on accident or afterthought that there are such things as parents and children in this world. It's not like God said, what should I tell him my love's like? Mm, donkey giving birth. Nah. Uh, kids. Parents and kids. Yeah, that's it. High five. Holy Spirit. No. He put this in there from the beginning to design a creation that would reflect his glory and his ways. And God is not capricious, mom and dad. God is not inconsistent. He doesn't exasperate or discourage us. Yet he disciplines us lovingly. Read Hebrews 12. He's patient with us. He's long-suffering. He's happy. Our God is a happy father. And when we're not happy in our home... It implies that we're not him. But you do it long enough that it implies God isn't happy. Nothing less than a covenant picture is at stake, both for kids and parents. Nothing is more important than this. It takes thought and carefulness and constant evaluation, adjustments, It takes community. We need each other. He's given us the church. We're not in this alone. It's not mom and dad or just mom or just dad trying to figure this out alone. We have each other. We need models. We need to bounce things off of each other and ask for advice. It takes patience, prayer, humility, and boldness. It takes the fruit of the Spirit. So mom and dad, you can't neglect your own soul, even in the busiest seasons of parenting and job. Busy seasons cannot squeeze out Bible. You need the work of the Spirit in your heart. And you need the gospel. You need the gospel as the focus of your parenting, the content of the majority of your parenting, and also the hope and encouragement for all of your bad parenting. Because we all, we've all failed. But there is great hope in Christ. Only in Jesus, making all things new. And that's how there's hope for single moms today. That's how there's hope for single ladies who, frankly, don't like it when another Mother's Day rolls around and they're still not engaged. That's how there's hope and encouragement for couples who are unable to have children, and hope and encouragement for parents who have kids who didn't turn out like they thought they would. Jesus is more. The picture is glorious when it goes right, but it's a picture, it's a shadow. Christ is the substance and in him all the promises are yes and amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, for the richness of it. We thank you that you've given us many parts of it so we can compare scripture with scripture and get a whole picture. And yet we thank you for Well, that it was contextualized, we could say. Uh, That it came to us in a setting, at a time. It came, Lord, through people. People who saw needs and addressed them as we do ourselves. We pray, Lord, that you would take this lively book. It's living. It's active. It's a two-edged sword. And we pray you'd cut where we need to be cut and you would drop honey on our souls where that's needed. We pray you'd give life and encouragement for weary parents, for discouraged moms, for parents who have kids who didn't turn out like they hoped, for couples unable to have children, for single women here, for, for families who've lost a mom in the last year. Lord, you're better than life. We pray that today we would taste and see that you are good. We would do that afresh, and we would glorify you for your mercy and your work of reconciliation and restoration that's coming in Christ. He has done it, and yet more is still to come. We long for that day. We pray in Christ's name.